News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Justin Trudeau saying that this supply and confidence agreement starts today and, again, will be in place until the end of this parliament, scheduled in 2025. And he went on to say that this will be this will mean the government can function with predictability and stability during these uncertain times. He also said that it wasn't an easy decision adding that they remain two different political parties, but differences should not stand in the way of giving Canada what it needs. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Duane Bratt, political science professor at Mount Royal University. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on uh, this announcement? There were a lot of rumors that this was going to happen today. It's now been confirmed. What is your reaction? I mean, there, there's several things. One is when you look, uh, we have to actually see the written agreement. Um, but when they're talking about pharmacare and dental care, these are things the Liberals have promised in multiple platforms, but never done anything about. Uh, so in a sense, the agreement is the NDP forcing the Liberals to do something that they've wanted to do but haven't done. Um, and in return... We're going to see stability in Parliament, um, and meaning no election until 2025. So when we have minority governments, and we've had a number, uh, there's multiple options that the governing party could have. Uh, one is simply to, to move from one side to the other, one party to another, <clears throat> on an issue-by-issue business to ensure confidence. That's what Stephen Harper did for about five years with the Conservatives. Uh, from 2006 to 2011. Then you've got these sorts of written agreements. We, we saw those in B.C., uh, 2017 to, to 2021. We've seen it provincially before in Ontario and Manitoba. We've never seen it federally with an actual written agreement. And the third is a, a coalition where you've actually got people from multiple parties in the same cabinet. And that's not what this is. Uh, we use uh, <clears throat> political scientists tend to use coalition in a much more technical way than the general public is. But that's what this is. And, and all governing parties have to figure out a way of, of making permanent work. And this is one of them. Uh, so when the, the Prime Minister was announcing this just a few moments ago, uh, he, did, he talked about that this is going to bring stability to the government and give Canadians the stability that they deserve. But it's not as though the New Democrats haven't been propping them up and haven't been supporting them. I mean, was there really a concern that that, that support that was already there was going to stop? Well, the, the, we only had an election, you know, half a year ago. So uh, that, that is one of the things. So um, as I said, I don't know if he feared uh, that this uh, could happen a year from now, six months from now, two years from now, uh, or whether it is an agreement designed to um, prop up some of his party that may not have wanted to pursue these, these angles. Uh, I will also um, say... You know, from an NDP perspective, this gives them certainty, too, because you may recall that the 2021 election, Justin Trudeau called it early. Uh, he was not defeated in the House, and he did it to actually get a majority government. Um, and so uh, maybe <laughs> that's what he's achieved now with this deal with the NDP.
And, and do you think people are generally okay with this? Like you said, we had this uh, this very similar uh, agreement in BC between uh, the New Democrats and the Green Party. Uh, do voters are voters okay with it because they didn't technically vote for uh, the two parties coming together? I get that it's not. No, they're, they, they're not coming together. What they voted for was over a hundred and you know uh, fifty Liberal MPs and another twenty NDP Liberal or NDP uh, MPs, and those MPs are working together. If you're saying, well, no, we wanted to see the, the government fall because we didn't elect the majority government, that, that's not the case. We elect one representative, and then those representatives go to Parliament, and uh, that's how we either form a majority or a minority government. So this is not unusual in many parliamentary systems. It is unusual federally. As I said, you've got to go back to probably World War One to, to see this federally. Um, but provincially, it has happened. But the conservatives are already just screaming about this. And, and part of this is the legacy of the prorogation crisis back in 2008, when Stephen Harper was uh, facing a non-confidence vote with an agreement between the Liberals, the Bloc, and uh, the NDP. And he called it, you know, a coalition of, of losers. And successfully prorogated, broke the, uh, broke the agreement apart, and was able to govern for a while. So ever since, having opposition parties or different parties formally agreeing to work together in, in Ottawa has become a dirty word. Uh, it shouldn't be. Um, there should be lots of different ways that parliamentarians could work together the, to remove some of the partisanship. Uh, but I think this is what has happened is our terminology has changed as a result of, of 2008. Uh, do you think it matters then as far as the details, uh, like you mentioned, if this agreement has uh, makes it so that the federal liberals have to tell the New Democrats, keep them in the know on everything they're planning, everything that's, go that's going to be coming up? Well, the, the reason I say we need to look at the wording is um, John Horgan called an early election despite the agreement that he had with the, with the Greens, uh, because there was a loophole in the, in the agreement. And I think people have, have learned from that experience, and these are much more carefully drafted, because this doesn't just give certainty to the Liberals, this gives some certainty to the NDP on confidence motions. It doesn't mean that the Liberals can't pursue different things uh, from the NDP, but on the most important elements, they've got uh, the NDP votes to ensure that the government doesn't fall. Does it mean then that they have to make significant progress on pharmacare and dental care before 2025? And this, is, and this is the real challenge because both of those are provincial jurisdiction. And we've already heard the provinces uh, uh, complain about this. Uh, so what sort of deal has to be struck with the provinces? If you think about child care, that took a long time. And even now we don't have universality. Uh, Ontario is still holding out. Um, so <clears throat> this is an agreement for to pursue something that is actually in provincial jurisdiction. And so from a content point of view, this, this could be difficult. How do you measure progress? Exactly. But my guess is the NDP only agreed to this but because they were given some assurances that there would be progress. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and as I said, the, the Liberals have had this in their platform, I don't know, going back to the Cretchen days. They haven't done anything about it. The NDP have campaigned upon it uh, every single time. The, the NDP obviously feels in a minority situation 
now's the opportunity that they can pursue this. <coughs> Similar to uh, some real spending programs that the NDP and the Liberals worked on together back in the minority government in the 1970s. All right, Dwayne, we'll leave it there for this morning. But thanks so much for joining us and talking more about this announcement. Okay, you're welcome. That is Dwayne Bratt, political science professor at Mount Royal University. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. We are going to shift our focus once again to Point Roberts. We've talked about the Enclave many times during this pandemic, and you might think things are getting better with the testing not required in Point Roberts to come back into Canada and the lifting of more restrictions, but that is not necessarily the case. Brian Calder is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce, and he joins us now. Brian, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Jill. I was just thinking of going down to our history center and look backwards at uh, what we used to be and look at try and figure out if we got any future. Well, hopefully, hopefully you do. How are things right now? I know you've talked in the past about one of the big issues is getting tradespeople to come to Point Roberts now, even though testing isn't required. But what is the obstacle there as far as getting tradespeople? Arrive count, in a word, arrive count. Um, basically prior, if you recall back when we were uh, initially into the COVID, um, they allowed, the government of Canada, allowed what they called essential travel. And what that meant was uh, tradespeople and service people in Bellingham, or what we call the other side, were allowed to come through the 24 miles from their two-point Roberts uh, as long as they didn't get out of the vehicle, they were just in transit, they called it, and uh, they were called essential travel. And so they didn't need a can and, and so forth. And that went on for about 18 months, a year and a half. And as things got better, in other words, more 85% of us were vaccinated at that time, uh, July last year type of thing. And um, then just recently, they hit them with a rive count on top of the passport, the testing, the, uh, most of them are nexus, and they're interrogated at the border by the guards, as they should be as well. And now they throw a rive count in, which asks more questions than any board, uh, border guard has ever asked me in 80 years. And so that was the straw that broke their camel's back. They just said, you know what? Point Roberts market isn't big enough for us anyhow, and that last thing when we try and assemble our crew of five drywallers or four painters or three roofers or six roofers, whatever, and we assemble them in Bellingham, Blaine, Linden, Ferndale, whatever, and they've all got to do the Arrive Can app and so forth. They just go, you know, we just soon work in Bellingham three miles away from our office as opposed to go 25 miles each way uh, round trip. Uh, back and forth to Point Roberts. And so that killed us. I mean, we can't get concrete. If you can't get concrete, you can't build your house because you've got no foundation. And they're, not, they're just refusing to come, even from Canada. And so we've got about over, well, the, our estimate here is in excess of $5 million worth of projects stalled because of that. That seems like a lot for Point Roberts. So what kind of projects have stalled? Housing. Uh, you know, may, may, probably half uh, the most, uh, I guess, overlooked uh, energy in our economy here 
is probably half of our overall economic life here is somehow related to real estate. Buy and sell land, buy and sell houses, build houses, paint houses, service houses, uh, landscape houses. And that's a huge economic impact to us. And it's also the better paying jobs as opposed to, say, service industry at $15, $20 an hour. As you know, for contractors uh, and service reps in the uh, business like HVAC and roofers and drywallers, they get sort of 25 up uh, dollars an hour. And it's not something then that can be replaced by uh, people coming down and filling up on gas and maybe going to the marketplace. Well, every little bit helps, as we know. But, I mean, that's a pretty thin market to try and uh, live here, make your town function and work based on parcel posts and gas stations and a bit of shopping. Uh, that's pretty thin. And we've been going down, eroding probably 3 to 5% a year for 15 years. And COVID just did us in. Um, and no help from our governance uh, in Bellingham, none. Um, and no, no plan. There's no economic development plan. There's no good zoning bylaw here. So it's been coming ever so slowly, thankfully slowly, and no uh, reversal, no plan for any reversal. In fact, they take things away. Years ago, uh, Joy Metcalf, who you know uh, from Vancouver, her family was here and had a big store, an outdoor skating rink, uh, uh, like a Dairy Queen operation over in Boundary Bay, and there were two other stores there, all gone, gone, removed, not replaced. The dock down here for public uh, uh, boat launching and so forth, gone, taken away. We had it there for 40 years, and our own government here, we've got seven miles of foreshore, seven miles, and we brag about our water and our water access. We don't have one dock left. We used to have seven, all taken out. Uh, Brian, and it, it's just ridiculous. We only have about a minute left, but I, I did want to, when you talk about your government, but it, at this point, if, if it's a rive can that you need lifted, you're looking to the Canadian government, are you, saying that, that, that you'd like them to lift that requirement? Absolutely. I mean, it's so redundant. Are they trying to use it to replace border guards? Because they, they ask more questions on it, and they give you the chip, you go up, you should be able to just scan it in, and the border should open, and away you go. Or get rid of it and let the border guards do their job. All right. Well, Brian, we're going to leave it there again for today, but thanks, as always, for joining us. And we will talk to you again and hope for better news next time. I hope so, Joel, and thank you very much. All right. That is Brian Calder. He is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it uh, has come to light that some BC seniors are struggling when it comes to finding home care services, not the services themselves, but services in a language that they can understand. Up to 20% of the home support clients in BC don't speak English, and that's where we're seeing that communication barrier. So what can be done to help remedy this? Isabel McKenzie is BC's seniors advocate. She joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Good morning. Twenty uh, percent seems like like a, a high number of people. So this is we're talking about people that have home care support services, uh, workers that are coming into their homes and and then not really being able to communicate. 
Well, communication will be limited. So what we know is that they do not primarily communicate in English. That's the the measure that we take. And if you compare that, for example, to the uh, population in BC, actually 30%, according to our Statistics Canada data, don't primarily speak English in the home. So what it tells us is that um, there obviously are a, a proportionately some seniors who are not choosing to use our formal home care, in part because of the language barrier. It won't be the only reason. And then one out of five of our home care clients are obviously having challenges communicating with their home care staff and, frankly, other medical staff about their care needs. So how do you try and remedy something like that? Well, it's it's challenging. It's, it's, it's easier for the languages where... Um, you're going to have a, a high likelihood of finding staff who can also speak that language. So uh, Mandarin, Punjabi, uh, Vietnamese, uh, those, those types of languages. It's more difficult for uh, languages that are not as uh, prolific as second languages in British Columbia. But um, I, I think we also have to look at the system being able to be flexible and uh, allow those families who are trying to provide care for their loved one in the language their loved one speaks um, to receive a different kind of support for home care. And I've talked about this before, our client direct funding. Um, And that would allow them to reach out within their linguistic community and find somebody. The other thing I just also want to mention um, that does happen, and some people will have experienced this, is that Um, one presentation of dementia or cognitive decline is that somebody whose first language was not English, but who adapted and who worked and lived in English uh, for their working life, uh, revert back to only their mother tongue and are no longer able to communicate in English. It's it's not frequent, but it is also an added complexity uh, with the aging process for some people for whom English is their second language. Hmm. Is it something that that it could work if there was, say, a directory of workers, or do we know how many workers, say, speak other languages, or, or then you might be able to have access to a worker that you know would speak the language that you speak? Within the formal home care system, so these are people who are getting staff from their health authority, uh, that provision is there. It's a, a system we call it Procura, and when you... Um, put all the the things about the worker in there. You put what languages they speak, and when you input the things about the client, you put what languages they speak, and the algorithm matches as best they can that worker to that um, uh, to that client. So it is possible, and it does happen that we do match people linguistically, but it's not perfect for a number of reasons. The more obscure languages will be difficult. You'll be far less likely to have workers who speak those languages. And the other thing is just the sheer complexity of scheduling home support. As I'm sure uh, you know and you've probably heard from, from your audience uh, who talk about home support, this different number of workers coming in, etc. Um, it is more difficult to always have a worker who is going to speak, be able to communicate with the client in that client's language. Is it something that uh, technology could play a role as far as, I know it wouldn't be perfect, but if a worker has, say, an iPad or or another device that's able to interpret and at least try and communicate that way? 
Um, Yes, that is helpful. This sort of versions of Google Translates will be helpful um, for the worker to understand the client. A little helpful for the client to understand the worker, not as perfect, because again, by the time you're getting home support from uh, the public home support system, uh, you have some significant care needs, care, or care needs, pardon me. You have frailty and you likely have some cognitive confusion. And so it's, it's exacerbating an already difficult situation. But you are right, um, Jill, there are some technologies that can assist us and uh, making sure that our staff are trained in those technologies, which isn't really currently um, what we do in a formal way. Uh, but I think that's going to be important, particularly when you look at the lower mainland, uh, at not only where we are, uh, but where we are projected to be in the future. All right. Uh, Isabel McKenzie, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you for joining us uh, and talking about this. It's not something we talk about a lot, but clearly uh, it is an issue uh, that needs to be addressed. So thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, shifting our focus to Victoria, where residents could soon be given the option of making a contribution to the local First Nations, the Songhees and Esquimalt Nations, when they pay their property taxes. Not part of the property taxes, but a suggestion of perhaps contributing 5 or 10% of that amount. Joining us now to talk more about this is Lisa Halps, the Mayor of Victoria. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. How did this come about, uh, this idea? It came about from a group of uh, residents in Victoria working on a program called Reciprocity Trusts. And uh, their long-term objective is to set up a trust to give residents on Vancouver Island, not just in Victoria, an opportunity to make a contribution uh, to a local nation that they would gather up and uh, hand over to the nations to to do with as they please, whether it's language revitalization, housing, education, and so on. Uh, So I met with these folks a number of months ago, and it's going to take them some time to build relationships with the nations to get their whole uh, infrastructure set up. And so I just went to our chief financial officer at the city and said, hey, isn't this something we could do relatively easily uh, right away? And she said, absolutely, yes. And and so that's how the idea came to be. So it was generated by the community. We're going to pilot it at the city uh, and... when and if the Reciprocity Trust folks get set up, um, we'll, we'll work to hand it over to them with, with the nations. And so why is it connected to property taxes? That is a great question. Um, every city in Canada, including Victoria and Vancouver, is built on Indigenous land. And we benefit, uh, we property owners benefit and the city benefits from wealth generated by Indigenous lands, um, many of which uh, were, were taken or, you know, treaties not respected and so on. And so the, the thinking is that, and again, it is a voluntary contribution. You got it bang on in your introduction. But as people are thinking about the wealth that they hold in their homes each year when they pay their property taxes, um, we're going to ask people to consider, hmm, maybe this wealth should be shared in through the principle of reciprocity with the nation. So that's really the, the tie to property taxes. It doesn't need to be, but it's that principle that we are all benefiting from wealth generated on Indigenous land. 
And was there any consideration then, given that, uh, as we all know, inflation is uh, an issue, cost of living for many people is going up, uh, and, and people are struggling, that rather than asking people to pay more, to, to pay a percentage of their property taxes, the city find ways, or find efficiencies, or the city find ways that if they wanted to give a portion of the property tax collected to do that? We are already doing that. So this is in addition to the city has created a reconciliation grant and we're donating, or I guess it is a donation, but we're doing a grant. Uh, I had proposed something much bolder than what council actually ended up with, but um, we're doing a reconciliation grant of $200,000 a year for the next five years directly to the nations from new assessed revenue. So from revenue generated through new property. So we, the city's already doing that. Um, last year, last summer, after the, um, first children's bodies were discovered outside of Kamloops and then other places, many, many Victoria residents uh, have said, what can I do? What can I do as a resident to make recompense, to, ha- to help with reconciliation in a meaningful way? And there are lots of ways to, to do that. You can learn about residential schools. You can learn about Lekwungen culture here in Victoria. Um, and this is one more tool in a resident's reconciliation toolbox. So there's no obligation. We recognize that re- people are stretched. Inflation is happening. Businesses are stretched. That's why it's voluntary, but it's it's something that people can tangibly do if they're willing and able to make a contribution to the process of reconciliation in Victoria with the two nations here. And I think everyone would agree uh, it's very important and it is something, like you say, that so many people want to figure out how they can get involved and what they can do. Are you concerned at all, though, that this isn't really the under the, the purview of civic government? I mean, all Canadians indirectly make a contribution through federal taxes and transfers that go to First Nations. Uh, is this really something that a civic government should be doing? Absolutely. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission report from 2015 has five calls to action for local government, and one of them involves recognizing uh, local government and Indigenous lands and uh, the, the kind of economic responsibility. I, I don't have the wording top of mind, but the, the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action of the 94, five calls are directly to local governments. In 2017, the city adopted all five of those, and we've been working slowly uh, at those for the last five years. Do you have any idea as far as feedback? I know it's still in the planning phases and it hasn't actually gone into place, but but to, uh, I mean, other than the, the group that started this and, and kind of got the ball rolling, did you have any sense on what kind of a response you're going to get from, from property owners in Victoria? I really don't. Um, over the last, as I said, five years and, and more recently and pre-COVID, we, the City of Victoria hosted along with the City Family, which is our reconciliation body, uh, a number of reconciliation dialogues. Uh, and those were, we, we held the first one at City Hall, perhaps naively, and, and 200 people packed in and our fire chief said, whoa, 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 you've got to find a bigger venue. There's too many people here. I mean, obviously we continued that night, but there, there's a very, very high interest. And so the, the, the next few dialogues we held at the conference center and had close to 400 people attending just to come out and listen and learn and then hundreds more people attending online. So there is an appetite. And my, my thinking is that probably those people who are already engaged to already know the issues um, may be the first to make contributions this year and uh, and you know maybe they'll they'll tell their friends and family and we'll go from there but the only thing I have to go on is the number of people who have attended reconciliation oriented events in the city uh, over the past few years all right uh, mayor helps we'll have to leave it there we're right out of time this morning but thanks so much for joining us and for explaining how this is going to work yeah thanks for the opportunity 
All right, that is Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria, talking about uh, residents there who might be getting that letter along with their property taxes, uh, saying that they have the option of contributing 5 or 10% or another amount to local First Nations. This is Mornings with Simi. 8.19 on this Tuesday morning. It is time now to check in with CKNW contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, what I have come to see in the last uh, several weeks is how much the people in Metro Vancouver have been coming together, just doing even their, their small part to contribute to the effort to help Ukrainians. And I keep hearing people doing things that uh, are, they're kind of small, you know, things like bake sales, or um, I was talking to a woman who makes flags, she's making flags right now uh, of Ukraine's um, flag. Uh, and she is uh, just doing that to raise proceeds uh, to go there. And then uh, lots of local artists have been selling prints of their work online as a fundraiser, uh, doing that here in Vancouver. And I even came across an athlete in Surrey. His name is Samit Sharma, and he's uh, on Team Canada's powerlifting team. He's won gold for Canada at Panama's powerlifting championship. He's obviously not Ukrainian, but he was supposed to go there soon to compete. You know, Ukraine was actually holding the biggest powerlifting event in in the world, uh, the powerlifting championship. Um, you know, that's something that has been always on my goal to represent Canada and compete at Worlds. Um, so next year, actually, uh, Ukraine was actually holding the event. Uh, me, my sponsors, my family, my trainers, we were all looking forward uh, for that event. So he had been researching Ukraine. He became super interested in the culture, the history, the peoples. He was looking forward to going there to compete and represent Canada. And then obviously that's not going to happen, as he said. But when the news showed that the invasion uh, was happening, it really impacted him. I never thought in my lifetime that I would actually witness a war, see a war. I mean, I remember growing up, taking classes. We read a lot about World War One, World War Two. Just very, like, very horrific stories that we heard. Thought that I would actually be seeing, um, seeing a war, uh, seeing it on TV. Really touched myself. I touched my family. Touched my sponsors. Um, you know, just seeing see all those people in Ukraine. You know, they're innocent people, and basically they got nowhere to go. Um, and I really wanted to, you know, help them as much as I kept, I could. So Samit reached out to the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, and along with his uh, sponsor, Supplement King, they teamed up with the foundation. They're going to promote the fundraiser um, at the Supplement King locations and accept donations there. But he's also going to be at the April 30 Spring Showdown powerlifting event in Abbotsford, talking with people there, with competitors, with the audience about the fundraiser, with the community there. And, you know, Jill, some people hear something like that and they you know, wonder, okay, like how much of an impact can that have? I think a lot because um, I think times are starting to show now that not everyone is pro-Ukraine. Um, and now that the war has raged for about a month, it's been really interesting to see how anyone with influence, uh, celebrities, people in the public eye, how they're talking about what's happening in Ukraine and how they're talking about Russia's role. And so I find that like if an athlete, an elite athlete is willing to take the stage and basically, you know, side with human rights in front of everyone and and talk about the, how civilians have the right to be protected from shelling in Ukraine. You know, there, there might be people there who hear that and go, OK, yes, I do agree with that. And maybe that's the perspective they haven't heard of yet. And even just now, I find on social media, if you look at some of the very popular Russian figures, like people with millions of followers um, and how 
those people are talking about what's happening is very interesting. Um, like there's a, a woman, Natalia Vodianova. She's, she's a famous supermodel. Okay. She has over 3 million followers on her social media account. She often comments on human rights and politics. It's pretty regular for her too, but she's been quiet when it comes to the war. Uh, she only had one post about it where she referred to it as a conflict, um, which depoliticizes the war, obviously. But then also I've been finding Jill that, um, how corporations, how uh, Nestle, for example, uh, they they have said that they won't enforce sanctions and, and boycotts in Russia. They'll continue to do business there. And um, they did at the same time, though, post a message in support of peace, which I found interesting because that's not exactly the same thing as saying one is anti-Putin. Um, so I also find it's hard to get a read on on what Russians in Russia actually think of Putin and the war when you when you uh, surf all of those uh, social media sites looking at, at Russians posts. Yeah, I would agree. And, and, and perhaps uh, the, the kind of mainstream social media sites aren't the best place if you're trying to get a true read on what people are, are saying and what people are talking about when it comes to that, because there's going to be a lot of fear as well. In many cases, uh, if you have a certain opinion, it's not something you're probably going to put out there if you are somebody living in Russia. Yeah, so it's just difficult to determine what people there actually think or feel. And then beyond that, um, I have never encountered so much disinformation, doctored pictures, um, you know, memes that have are just filled with inaccuracies the way that I have with uh, the news coming out of uh, the war in the last month. Um, certainly I did with COVID-19 see a lot of misinformation and disinformation, but I'm seeing way more now. And even when I'm looking at credible news sources, uh, you know, we always have to question the facts. So now when I see a video online covering the war in Ukraine, my instinct isn't to go, okay, this is factual. It's to, to wonder, okay, was this staged? Uh, who put this video out? What's the original source? Is there another one that corroborates it from a different angle? Uh, because so much of what is being shared online right now about the war is, um, is not necessarily true. No, it's it's very true, and you're right. It's uh, doing kind of that due diligence and doing a double check or even a triple check when you're looking at things to make sure uh, that they are legit. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you probably saw that video of a, uh, a Russian uh, producer on TV, for example. She's holding a sign up. She's protesting the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I watched that, I then went online to you know double check it, triple check it. And there were so many, I guess you could call them theories, about how it could have been staged and if it was staged, who did it and uh, does this uh, network even uh, broadcast live. And it was interesting to see people question it that were Ukrainian and Russian. And I just went down a rabbit hole of researching this one news story for a few hours to determine its accuracy. So I would say that like due diligence these days takes a lot of work when it comes to uh, the images that we're getting online. All right. Well, Raji, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi.
Just a reminder, stay tuned for that cue to call. It is not right now, but a bit later on this half hour, we are giving away some tickets to the HSBC Canada Rugby Sevens. We are going to once again play the random trivia question game. So that is coming up. Right now, though, talking about some extreme weather. We've certainly experienced that here in BC, whether it's the heat dome or the widespread flooding that we saw in many parts of BC last year, still rebuilding in many areas. These are extreme weather events that pose a significant threat to safety, the lives and livelihoods of people. As we know, we saw so much damage in the Fraser Valley. So it's more important than ever that we all understand how to properly prepare for flooding. Joining me to talk more about that is Kimberly Fenwick, the Director of System Risk at Technical Safety BC. Kimberly, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Thanks for having me today, Jill. I'm really happy to be here to help people understand a little more what they can do uh, about flood flood safety uh, with technical equipment. Does it matter first? I would imagine there are different levels of of risk assessment and what people need to do depending on on where you're living or where your home or your property is located. Or is it more there is a general checklist that everybody uh, would benefit from doing? Yeah, you know what? There are some things that everybody should do, but it is certainly much more important for people who live in high-risk flooding areas to be doing these things. And there's a couple of things that you might want to think about um, above and beyond if you do live in one of those high-risk flooding areas. Let's let's start then maybe with the, the more general things uh, that everybody will likely have. If we're talking about properties, we all have appliances, uh, we all have things that maybe need to be unplugged. What should people do to be prepared in that case? Yeah, so there's really kind of two phases. One is there's, there's a couple things people can do now to make it easier and less stressful for them in the event of a flood. And then there's some things that people can do when flooding is actually coming and they're needing to get ready to evacuate. So in terms of what people could do now, um, if they walk around their homes and just make a basic checklist of all the appliances they have, all the electrical appliances and all the gas appliances, and make sure they understand how to turn those off. Where are the plugs? Where are the knobs? Where are the valves? Um, And if they have all of that in a list, then when it comes time to evacuate, they will know what needs to be done without having to think too much about it. Right, because I would imagine if you're in that situation of evacuating, you're probably thinking about a few other things and you don't want to have to start maybe doing that list from scratch. That's absolutely right. And so the other thing that people can do now is do a little bit of research ahead of time to find out who the licensed gas and electrical contractors are in your area. Because there are some things people can do, for example, turning off electrical appliances themselves. But if you're needing to move a gas appliance, you need a licensed contractor to do that. And if you're wanting to isolate your electrical circuits, you're going to need a licensed electrical contractor to do that. So if you know already who some of the licensed contractors are in your area and you have enough time before you evacuate, then you've already got that name. You've already got that list. Which probably too, I mean, we do think about unplugging things or turning things off, but maybe not taking that second step of if you have the time, the luxury of of time to do that, actually getting a professional to come in and do that as far as properly uh, uh, getting the appliance, uh, unhooking the appliance. That's exactly right. So if you have time, and I totally understand that people won't always, but ideally what you would be doing is any 
appliances that are at risk of flood damage, so we're talking more like ground floor appliances mostly, would be entirely removed and moved to a safe location. Um, and with gas appliances, that means disconnecting them from the gas supply um, and properly capping off that gas pipe. And that's the piece that needs to be done by the licensed contractor. And what if if we're talking about the difference between, say, a bit of flooding you think might happen and you're preparing for that, or if you actually are expecting some serious damage? Yeah, so if you are in one of those flood zones and you expect that at some point you might have some serious damage from from floodwaters, one of the things you could think about doing is having a certified hardwired surge suppressor directly um, installed in your main um, electrical panel. Um, And again, that's something that a licensed electrical contractor could do for you. Um, another thing you can do um, if you have um, a, if you're su- uh, supplied by propane, uh, you might want to think about either having your propane tank removed ahead of flooding, or at least ensuring that it's really, really well anchored to make sure it doesn't float away in floodwaters. Uh, because that is something we often see that in the aftermath of flooding, uh, you see debris and 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 that, and oftentimes there are propane tanks in those yeah. uh, in those images. That's exactly right. Um, Now, if you receive an evacuation order, it might be second nature or it might seem like the right thing to do is shut everything off. But I understand that's not what you're supposed to do with natural gas. So if your natural gas is supplied by Fortis BC or Pacific Northern Gas, that's right. Do not shut off your natural gas. If you have uh, gas provided by propane or other utility providers, then yes. Do shut your gas off upstream of the gas meter or at the propane tank. But you're absolutely right. If your gas is from Fortis or Pacific Northern Gas, then they don't want you to turn that off. And let's uh, skip ahead. We've got a couple of minutes left. So we'll skip ahead to post-flooding. Maybe there's been some flooding, serious flooding. What do you do as far as preparing? You're going back into your property. What should you first do when you get back? Well the, ver- well, the very first thing is don't go back until it's actually safe and you've been cleared to do so. Um, but once that's happened and you've been cleared to go back, the very first thing you should do is walk around your home and assess for flood damage. And when you're doing that, play- pay close attention to your electrical and your gas appliances and identify which ones may have been impacted by the floodwaters. So that's the very first thing. And do people get a pretty pretty good idea in that, is it possible though something won't look damaged, but there's still a concern with, you don't just want to flip a switch and turn it back on? I think what people are going to know pretty well is where the floodwaters have come up to. So if, you're, if you have appliances that have been clearly impacted by floodwaters, then you need to assume that those might not be safe. And at that point, don't turn any of those things back on. You need to hire a licensed contractor, whether it's a gas contractor or an electrical contractor, to come in and take a look. Because, yes, there are ways that they could be damaged that you might not be able to identify. And finally, if your power has been turned off, uh, obviously, I I guess, contacting uh, Hydro, uh, what else should you do in that scenario? Yeah, so if your power has turned off, you contact BC Hydro or Fortis, depending on, on what your power supply is from, to have it turned back on. Um, Again, if there's been any kind of damage, you're going to need to have a contractor come in and fix that damage, and then they can assist you in getting your power turned back on after all the damage has been fixed. All right. Well, it's a good reminder and a timely reminder uh, as we enter into the spring months. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for joining us and for bringing us up to date. Thanks so much for having me.